When Beth tells me this, I'm in my mid-30s and Beth is in her 50s, and I too stop cold. No one has ever suggested that our mother rearranged reality. If so, how do I even begin to rearrange everything in my life that might have been rearranged without my knowing? Why would our mother rearrange the truth? Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. The Right Question is supported in part by Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with Alexandra Teague, author of Spinning Teacups, a mythical American memoir. In this richly told, some might say quirky collection of essays, Alexandra attempts to understand and contextualize her family in terms of both trauma and mental health with explorations of pop culture and the specific cultures of the places she and her family pass through. Spinning teacups is something akin to magical realism in a nonfiction form, exploring with great tenderness and honesty the dangerous and recuperative powers of fantasy. Alexandra Teague is a professor of English and the co-director of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Idaho. She is the author of three volumes of poetry and a novel, The Principles Behind Flotation. Alexandra, thank you so much for being here. Welcome back to The Right Question. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here with you today, Lauren. In this memoir, Alexandra, you write that your mother was a great storyteller. She was also arguably a psychic. How did these two skills overlap during your childhood and adolescence while you were growing up with her? I've joked as I've become an adult and a writer that I became a writer because I couldn't get a word in edgewise in my family. Nobody really could because my mother uh, not only was a great storyteller who told all kinds of stories about her life, she was just also the most talkative person with the strongest opinions about how everything was in the family and was, as I say in the book, the matriarch. She was 13 years older than my father, had had two daughters in her first marriage uh, two decades before I was born. And so she really controlled the narrative in the whole family, both by telling us what our history was and what was important um, and telling all kinds of very detailed stories about that, but also by telling us um, what she saw about the future and sometimes about the past, her sort of psychic abilities sometimes were retroactive. She would tell us that she had known things after they had already happened. So then it was very hard to verify if she had known or not. <laughs> and um, so I really think of it and came to think of it more clearly in the process of writing this book as having to do with her being the one who controlled the narrative. You just mentioned so much of what happens in your memoir as a whole, and I want to unpack each of those things throughout our conversation. But I want to go back to this idea that your mother was psychic or had these psychic abilities. Um, you said that something would happen and she would she would say, oh, well, I knew that was going to happen. Um, you also mentioned this idea of contradictions throughout your memoir as a whole. Alexandra, it becomes really clear that what your mother said and did often contradicted what she would then tell you. So I'm wondering how you navigated those blurry truths and untruths, especially as you're going through the process of writing this book and discovering that maybe some things that she told you and that you held to be truth were perhaps not. I'm wondering how that affected 
the way that you knew the world to be and, and know the world to be now? So in my childhood, because my older half-sisters were grown and gone from home by the time I was born, I was raised as really an only child. And so in my childhood, because my mother was such an amazing storyteller and because I spent most of my time with my parents, I accepted her versions of reality uh, very much as the truth and questioned myself and didn't trust myself and felt like I was kind of always being watched and that she might always know things about me. Um, so I think that very much affected my um, self-doubting uh, through my life. And I think in the process of writing the book, one of the challenges for me, but one of the things that I also found exciting was trying to find a way to immerse the reader in a sense of how real and immersive these kinds of stories were in my childhood and the ways in which things that might be considered kind of fantasy worlds or just storytelling, the lines between those and, you know, reality and what was nonfiction really blurred together. And so to write a nonfiction project about this um, and want to question those, but also give a sense of how, again, kind of immersive and all-encompassing some of those aspects of fantasy were, um, and how also how blurry those lines were was really interesting for me to try to wrestle with. I had a conversation with um, the amazing poet Ilya Kaminsky at one point in the process of working on this and described the project to him just briefly. And he said, oh, it sounds like you're writing magical realist nonfiction. And I love that idea because it doesn't go all the way there. And I don't want to just perpetuate the kinds of sometimes harmful fantasies that my family kind of lived within. But Again, I also want to blur those lines because they were blurry for me and for everyone else in my family as well. And so um, my sister Beth told me, not until I was in my 30s, a story that had happened when she bought the land next to my parents, bought a little piece of land next to my parents, and there was an old concession stand from a car racetrack that she was having redone into a house. And there was a statue of a jockey because the land had also been for a while um, horseback riding land. And so there was a statue of a jockey that was outside this concession stand. And she had seen the jockey in a pile of debris from the work that was being done on the concession stand. And she had planned to move it. And then it vanished before she could move it. And then she talked to my mother about this. And my mother said, oh, we moved that before you even bought the concession stand. And my sister Beth thought, that doesn't make any sense. I know I just saw it there a couple of days ago. Um, and then this happened. A few months passed, and after Beth had moved in, she got a roll of film developed. As she later told me, as I flipped through the photos, many of them of the construction, I stopped cold. There, in a pile of debris, stood the jockey. That feeling I'd had when Mom had said, oh, we moved that before you bought the property. The flash of confusion, the immediate shucking of what I remembered was all too familiar. I'd felt it repeatedly throughout my life. Now that I knew that I had photographic evidence, I understood why so many times I'd felt bewildered, why I didn't trust my sense of things and my perceptions. So many times, mom had rearranged reality for me. When Beth tells me this, I'm in my mid-30s and Beth is in her 50s, and I too stop cold. No one has ever suggested that our mother rearranged reality. If so, 
How do I even begin to rearrange everything in my life that might have been rearranged without my knowing? And why would our mother rearrange the truth about an inconsequential jockey, which for years after lived on a broken hunk of concrete outside the old tack room that Beth and my parents shared for storage? Hmm. How do I even begin to rearrange everything in my life that might have been rearranged without my knowing? That must have been such a shock for you, Alexandra. Does that idea that you're not quite in the reality or living the reality that you think you are, does that still stick with you even to this day? Absolutely. And that was so much of the process of writing was trying to rearrange that reality, but also recognizing the limitations of that. My memory is my own. It's fallible. It does. It overlaps with members of my family, uh, but certainly we all have different takes and memories. I mean, I admit something in the final essay that one of the the genesis for the entire project uh, was particular wording that my nephew used to describe our family. And then when I brought that wording up to him later, he said, oh, I don't remember saying that. I don't think I ever said that. And to me, it was this most potent wording possible. And so my memory of the far past is fallible and my memory of the more recent past and everyone else's memory of that is, as you know, we all talk about with nonfiction. Um, but this process of wanting to try to rearrange reality so that I understand what I think it actually is about my family and what I've inherited, uh, but then recognizing that that will certainly also have its own limitations. And, you know, I was wanting to be very careful of not stepping on other family members' versions of truth or their stories, which I try to do by offering a lot of questions and showing that my version of this is still, you know, a work in progress, tentative, hypothetical. Yeah, that's one of the many joys that I had while reading this memoir was that you don't come to conclusions. There are no definitive, this is what I understand about this life or my parents' lives, my, my family's life. But I'm wondering, going back to this idea that memory is fallible, how did you approach your own memory and memories when those contradictions have been such a large part of your life? Um, and I, I suppose this is a craft question. How did you actually go into these questions? Were there a ton of interviews with your family? Um, I'm wondering how you navigated that unknowing or the, the, the truths, I'm, quote, I'm air quoting that, the truths and the untruths in your life. I started with what felt most present and sometimes the iconic images from my life. I mean, there's, for instance, a scene where my mother throws all of my dolls out the window on Christmas Eve because of a fight with me when I was a child. And that was something that had stayed with me my whole life. And I may have some details about exactly which dolls were involved wrong, for instance, but I am positive that that actually happened to me and it left this really strong imprint. And that's a case where I started from an event that I knew happened. In other places, I started with what felt more like the emotional truth of the situation and found a way to metaphorically describe it, like in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea about my mother's father's death in an ammunition ship explosion in World War II. I begin the essay by saying that my grandfather kept dying again and again throughout my childhood because that is how it felt to me. And when my sisters first read that essay, one of them said, did our mother tell you 
it felt like he was dying daily. And I said, no, this was not something that anybody had to tell me. It's That's just how it felt because his death was so present to her and she never got over it. So I either started with the truth of a particular incident or what felt like a description kind of metaphorically of an emotional truth and then built out from there. And at some points got to questions that I did need to ask family members about and um, did talk to them. And in other instances, found areas that I just needed to do more research into. There's another essay that, you know, talks a lot about the San Francisco club scene in the early 2000s. And I lived that. I was there. Um, But I didn't know that much about the preceding rave scene there and about what that how that moment has kind of been seen um, and so I did some research about that. I did research about the ghost town in New Mexico where part of my family lives because even though I've been there many times, there was a lot about its history that I didn't know. So often I had to fill in my own memory, even about places that I know with um, some additional research. I didn't think when I was preparing for this interview, Alexandra, that I would focus so much on reality versus non-reality, but I kind of do want to stick with that for a little bit longer because there is oscillating mental health issues happening um, and threaded throughout each of these these essays, whether it's your mental health, your mother's mental health, your nephew's mental health. And I'm wondering how that plays a role in this idea of reality or not reality. A lot of the mental health, as I say in the book, was not talked about in my family as mental health issues. It's just how the people were or that, you know, that was just the reality that sometimes people had, you know, strange screaming fights or sometimes your mother chases you through the house with a large kitchen knife or those kinds of things, you know, so, but we didn't directly address that as mental health per se. Having had several bipolar people, particularly who have been very close to me, um, I've had more experience than I wish I had with having conversations with people who are describing some things that seem attached to the reality as I understand it and other things that seem very delusional. And recognizing that the things that are being said that seem more delusional to me are the reality that that person is inhabiting in their mind and that my really wrestling with whether my role as somebody who loves that person is to step in and try to say that does not seem realistic or that does not seem like how things are, uh, whether that will be helpful in bringing them back towards reality or whether that will disrupt something that for them is really important. Like in my nephew Gabriel's case, like he believed he was going to start this business called White Rabbit Incorporated. And that was his dream. And that was what he was holding onto in a time that everything else was falling apart in his life. And so just in the same way that I recognize that stories often keep us alive and we go to other people's narratives, we go to books and movies and songs and all of these things because uh, we're looking for other people's stories and some of those aren't real. And we go to fantasy stories because we want to imagine that there is more to the world and and all of this that I recognize that um, reality, it's very important to stay in touch with reality, but also we have to imagine alternatives and imagining alternatives often is a part of how we cope with reality and also the ways that we are able to change society. We have to be imaginative. We can't just say, well, this is the reality. We have to live in this way forever. So these questions are so tricky when you get around mental health. Um, 
And they're so tricky societally. I mean, we live in a time. I mean, when I started writing this book, I didn't expect things to get to the, you know, like for fake truth and truthiness and all of the kinds of terms that people use all the time now. I didn't expect those to be kind of common parlance like they are. So we've uh, these questions have only become more pressing. And honestly, of course, the mental health crisis in this country has only become more pressing. So many people are incredibly struggling. So many, if not all of these essays, they find you in different stages of your life grieving, whether that's your mother, your nephew, the relationships, like romantic relationships that have ended. And I'm wondering what the writing of this memoir, spinning teacups, compiling these essays, writing them, what was the role of this in your grieving process? Did you come out the other side a different grieving person? Or was the grieving process, I know that grieving is continual, right? Like you're constantly grieving. And so I know that it's not like a start stop situation. But what role did this play in your elongated grieving process? Yeah, that's a really powerful question. The impetus for the book was my nephew Gabriel's suicide shortly before his 26th birthday. And, and I would not have stayed with the project if I hadn't felt as though it was important to who he was in the world because he was also a writer and really cared about that. And he admired that I was a writer. And after I wrote that first essay, I really went on with the project because it felt to me as though the book was an honoring of who he was and who our family was around him. And it was a reckoning with the difficult sides of of all of that as well. Um, so it was very, do I hesitate to say healing? I think healing is true because I think for me, connection to other people and other beings, connection is maybe the most important thing about being alive. And I think of that as connection. Um, there's a beautiful Muriel Rukeyser line in one of her poems where she says, my lifetime listens to yours. And that's kind of a driving um, idea in my life. I want to listen to other people's lifetimes, whether or not they overlap with mine. I want to listen to history. I want to, you know, listen to what I think we can leave for the future too. Um, and, And I definitely want to listen to the people and the stories that are around me. And at best, I hope that they will also hear my stories and connect. You know, I'm a writer because I, I want to my stories to connect and overlap with other people's. I want to get to have these kinds of conversations and hear what other people are experiencing as well. So in that way, it felt very healing to me to be able to stay over the course of about five years that I spent working on this book um, with these stories and writing, you know, in conversation with my family, even if they weren't directly writing back, it felt like a conversation with all of these stories and experiences. You're listening to A Conversation with Alexandra Teague. I'm Lauren Korn. This episode of The Right Question is supported by Fact and Fiction, an independent bookstore located in the heart of Missoula, Montana, providing books for all ages and supporting the literary community in Montana and beyond. More information can be found at factandfictionbooks.com. Let's let's dig into Disney because almost Every essay collected here points directly to Disney or Disney World. And it seems to me, and 
correct me if I'm wrong, that one reason for that is that you just spent a lot of time at Disney World with your family. And so in this book, it became an obvious sort of true north to orient all of these essays toward. But I think that I want to talk about the ways that it, you know, again, points to or distracts from, disrupts ideas of reality. And I'm going to point to your essay, Space Mountain. And you quote the author of a book titled Vinyl Leaves, Walt Disney World and America. I'm going to quote here, Although much of Walt Disney World is named for the future, much of the activity at the parks is wrapped up in the trappings of the past. Alexandra, talk about that line, how it operates in that essay, but also how it's represented, and listeners might infer at this point how it might be represented, but how it's represented throughout your memoir, especially in relationship to reality and um, the way that the memoir moves between time. Yeah, I think of Disney World as in part being this idealized, fantastical version of a past that never actually existed in this country. It's a very whitewashed fantasy sort of everything can coexist. We've got the future of Tomorrowland right alongside Tom Sawyer's Landing where everything like everything has just been made fun. We've got Thunder Mountain and, you know, like the West is just like water, waterfalls and the mine rush and that's all fun. And, you know, the gold rush and, and um, you know, no acknowledgement of Native genocide, no acknowledgement of slavery, no acknowledgement of um, the actual economic conditions of people who are working at the park now in late capitalism, you know, like all of this, you know, it's just this, um, you know, everything is, people love Disney World because, it's fun. Everything is really clean. Everything is really pretty. All the trees are turned into topiary. You know, it's just, it, it can be fun. And that there's imagination involved in the characters and the rides and everything. And again, you know, that imagination and those characters and everything are important to a lot of people. And they're not only fun for kids, but there's lots of adults who also just like, you know, still have a real fondness for that. And so I, so I don't want to um, denigrate that, but I do think that Disney is very symptomatic of this um, deep American tendency to want to have all of the the fun and the the magic and I mean on the other side of the I mean I'm familiar with Disney World not Disneyland but on the other side of the country of course you've got not only Disneyland but also Hollywood which has a version of this as well you know it's like American culture wants to have all of the sort of glitz and glamour and fantasy and fun, uh, minus all of the messiness of the true lived experiences. And Disney is a, a immersive space that you can enter where you get to do that. And so I'm really interested in those kinds of constructed spaces that we can actually put ourselves into. Um, and I And I say in one of the essays that, you know, like Main Street USA was constructed as this idealized, it's both based off of Walt Disney's actual childhood Main Street and his memories of that, but also they've created the proportions of the buildings to give this sense of it being like even cozier and homier. So it's like reality that is like, you know, better than reality or more real than reality, you know? And so I find that really fascinating. And Disney World or Disneyland, as you said, um, the Disney worlds, they also complicate or maybe even make distinct 
the idea of the past and the future. You write in an essay, here is a past you can enter identically again and again. You write that of Disney World. You write about kitsch. And so there's this idea that Disney, these Disney worlds, these Disney amusement parks are this way to experience the past and the present. And it's not the only way you do that in the in the in the memoir. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the process for you of of writing that because it was a really interesting experience, sort of um, navigating the past and the future and the future and the past in that way. I think that I'm int- I I became interested in the ways in which the parks function as a sort of parallel to this question of how we enter history and how the past thought that the present would be and how the present hopes that the future will be. And then how that has happened through my life as I have imagined future versions of self or as family members have, or as we have sort of lived in or grown up within stories of the past. So the ways in which these layers of time exist, I think is interesting to think about in relation to the constructedness of these parks that are kind of, yeah, very much about the present and go have fun, but also like you're saying, are drawing on history and drawing on the future and also in allowing a writer or visitor to go and experience this sort of identical thing repeatedly if they want to. As you were talking, I couldn't help but think about the idea of nostalgia and Disneyland and Disney World, the Disney parks. Because you're getting people who were never present for this particular time in the world going to Disneyland and experiencing something like nostalgia. And that is kind of bizarre. Yeah. I think that's so true and so insightful. And it's interesting. I I quote that moment um, about um, like touristic expectations that like that it's impossible to miss the quote real experience at Disney because everything is constructed and so there's this bizarre thing where it's a relief to people because they don't have to worry about whether or not they're seeing the best possible thing or doing the best possible thing because that's all been kind of carefully prepared for them to make sure that they are but at the same time i think you're so right that there's this sort of element of that that overlaps with nostalgia and this sort of longing for again a you know a past that may or may not have ever been there and also that the person has not directly experienced themselves. It's it's a bizarre conflation. Is there closure with spinning teacups or are you going to be continuing to address all of the things that we've talked about in this conversation is it a wrap on those or will you continue to to draw on these ideas and these experiences for the rest of your writing life? Well, I do believe writers who say that we all have our few subjects that we gravitate around for our entire life. And it took me several books before I started realizing how true that was. And the reason I moved from poetry, which was my primary genre, into nonfiction was that I felt like there was a lot more that I needed to sit with more slowly and say and ask these questions about in ways that poetry didn't force me to do and didn't have the space to do, at least the style of poetry that I write. And so it does feel in that way like a culmination of themes that I have written about more obliquely or in other forms for years. And so I really don't know. I don't imagine 
writing as directly about any of these stories or my family again. I, I do feel like this is what I want to say, at least for now. But who knows what kinds of things will happen in my life and appear that might then completely recontextualize the things I think here and, and make me go back to this material. So it's certainly possible that I will. That was memoirist Alexandra Teague, author of Spinning Teacups, a mythical American memoir out now from Oregon State University Press. Look for more information about Alexandra at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris also engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridus. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.